Um, I, I think those passages of Scripture do a fantastic job of giving us you some idea of how uh, the writers of the Scripture were so engaged in their imagination as they write. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, You have come to Zion, to the new Jerusalem. Um, there's this mysterious way that he's writing to people who are nowhere close to uh, the new Jerusalem, to the mountain of the Lord. And yet he says, we are there. Well, how are we there? Uh, we are there uh, because all things are ours in Christ and we are there through these words that evoke imagination, that evoke meaning um, for us. Um, so today I would like to talk to you about symbol, sacrament, and imagination. And I want this to be very practical. As you know, you can get whole seminary degrees. There are whole libraries full of books about sacrament and symbol. And I don't want to give you um, an, a really intellectual, heady uh, talk about symbols and sacraments. But I do want to bring it home as it relates to this whole process of growing in Christ, of healing the split between head and heart, of becoming man and becoming woman. Um, so uh, fear not, you're not about to enter into a uh, highly uh, intellectually over-the-top uh, kind of talk here. Um, uh, pray with me for just a moment. Lord, thank you for this place. Thank you, Lord, for the windows through which we see the trees. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us through nature. Thank you, Lord, for the way you reveal yourself to us through the symbols of the table, of the cross. And I pray now, Lord, that you will give us great strength, that you will stir up in us a great eagerness to have our imaginations baptized and so fully submitted to you that you can lead us and guide us and speak to us with full um, freedom, that we will be the kind of people whose sails are all the way up to catch the wind of your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so I want to begin with two uh, really simple stories. Um, my daughter is the subject of three stories here. I hope someday she can listen to this and give her approval or bring the corrections where I've exaggerated or whatever. Um, but the two stories I want to begin with, uh, one takes place when she's five and the other one when she's 12. Um, our family, we are big um, sci-fi fans. And my husband was perhaps a little over-eager in, in trying to introduce her to his passion of sci-fi. And when she was about five, they were watching some... Um, TV, sci-fi show, or a movie, and there was some kind of alien monster thing that like broke through the ceiling into the house. So um, she seemed a little like, oh dear, a little you know startled by that. But when it was time to go to bed, um, she was having a terrible time going to sleep. And I said, Karis, um, you know what's what's the problem? And she says, every time I close my eyes, I imagine that that monster falling out of my ceiling in my bedroom into my room and I can't go to sleep I just keep thinking about it so I said well we can actually pray about this and I want to um, what I want what we're gonna do is we're gonna ask Jesus to come right here into your room uh, we're gonna close our eyes and imagine this we'll ask him to come right here and he's gonna um, he's gonna put his hands out like this and what I would like you to do is to take that scary picture and you want to just pull it out of your head and put it into um, Jesus' hands and just see what he does with it. So being a five-year-old, she's all ready for the imagination game. And we, uh, I pray, I invite the Lord to be present. Um, I see her pull something from her head and put it in Jesus' hands. And then I hear this big sigh. <sighs> then I ask the scary question. So did you see anything? What did Jesus do with that scary image? And she brightened up and she said, he put it in a trash can and he fired it up. <laughs> thought, wow, that's, you know, good, awesome, fantastic. And then off she went to sleep. Um, 
the symbols are not especially Christian, right? I don't think there's any, like, trash cans, you know, in the Bible. Uh, you know, these, these are just images that have come from wherever, right? Well, uh, uh, several years later, she's now 12, and um, we've... I don't know if you've ever done this where, like, you're watching a... Um, you think of a movie that you saw 20 years ago, and you think, oh, we got to see this movie. And you kind of, like, block out the things that maybe you wish you're going to later say, oh, I wish I would not have shown that. I forgot that was in there. Well, we wanted her to see Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Which is like this great, we're just remembering all the swashbuckling, awesome, cool, whatever. And we forgot that like when um, they have the tabernacle and these angels come, that uh, these are not like holy angels, okay? They are awesome. They are so gruesome. They're so terrible. So she sees that and she's kind of shell-shocked, you know? And we're thinking, oh, we're such bad parents, you know, why didn't we think through this? So again, it's bedtime. She can't go to sleep. And um, I said, you know, we've done this before. I reminded her of the trash can thing. And I said, let's, let's just ask, let's just give this scary image to the Lord. And so um, we did the same thing. We invoked the presence of the Lord. She pulled that image out of her mind. She put it in the hands of Jesus, deep sigh. So, well, what, what did you see? She said, the, the image went into the wounds in his hands and it disappeared. Well, she's had seven years of Sunday school, going to church, Bible stories. Um, she's been to some Holy Weeks. Now her imagination is, is being formed. There are Christian symbols and images in her imagination. And so it's not a trash can, right? It's, a, it's the central symbol of our faith is deep in her heart. Um, and in that moment, that uh, head knowledge of, you know, Jesus is greater than anything that is scary out in the world, um, that head knowledge and her heart knowledge where that <sighs> comes from, those symbols in the imagination uh, integrate head and heart. Um, so let's talk about this because we all have a great need to be able to interact with the Lord on that symbolic level and the level of the imagination. First of all, a little bit on what is the imagination, and then we'll talk about how it's formed, transformed, healed, baptized. Um, I draw my understanding of the imagination from uh, three sources. Uh, the first person that really got me to think about this is Leanne Payne. You'll find all her books out there. Uh, her book about C.S. Lewis called Real Presence is especially helpful um, where all these things are concerned. And um, then after being exposed to her teaching, I did a lot of uh, looking into Lewis himself, sort of trying to get it from the horse's mouth, and then also from um, Thomas Aquinas. So. Before you decide that I'm like just so brilliant, please know that I'm not actually saying anything terribly um, original here. Um, C.S. Lewis reminds us that in the Christian worldview, and I have to say most worldviews, because I think this is actually true, it's not just uh, an imposition of Christian ideas on reality, there is this understanding that, that all of reality has two realms. There's this higher invisible realm, uh, the realm of heaven, of things unseen. Um, and this, this is a realm that you might think of as uh, very real, but not something that we can perceive with our senses. So for example, the angels live in this realm. Uh, they are pure spirit. Um, Scripture refers to um, God as immortal, invisible, the only wise God. So there is this sense that the world has this uh, very uh, mysterious overlay of uh, supernature, of the heavens. And then uh, below that is the realm of nature. And this is not an inferior uh, realm. This also is full of beauty. 
It's full of galaxies, planets, mountains, mice, flowers, um, human beings. Um, and the, these two realms are part of our ordinary existence. We live in them at all times. Although, of course, our awareness of the natural uh, physical realm is so much more uh, accessible to us because we are uh, bodies that have five senses. However, um, as Christians, we believe that there's not a hard, fast distinction between these two realms, that the two realms actually overlap. So if you can imagine two circles on top of one another, you move them together a little bit and you have this space in the middle, right, where they are, where they are overlapping. Um, and actually in the Christian worldview, the circles come all the way down <laughs> so that they're like on top of one another. The two realms are always, always uh, conflated uh, into one. But for our experience as human beings, it's as though uh, the two are um, separate um, realms. Um, Lewis has an interesting things uh, to say. He uses this term called uh, transposition. And um, he says this unseen realm is often entering into uh, the visible realm. And the word he uses for this uh, accommodation of the higher into the lower is uh, transposition. Uh, he writes, when transposition occurs, when the higher reveals itself in the lower. Um, as an analogy, he asks us to think about Handel's um, Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, and what that looks like as um, when it's reduced to sheet music. I don't know if you've ever attempted to play that on the piano. I find it, it's, it's very unpleasant, right? Because you've got to do all these octaves. And um, The piano score is beautiful, but it's really just a, a symbol or a representation of all the instruments, all the voices, um, everything. Is, it's transposed and condensed into this uh, very discreet, relatively simple collection of symbols, uh, notes of music. Um, it's just something that is higher that is transposed into something that is lower. At the same time, he observes that the lower realm can be drawn up into the higher realm. So for example, a really competent musician can look at that musical score or any musical score and they hear sometimes, even in their heads, or imagine everything. They hear what it sounds like in their, in their heads. So those musical symbols actually catch them up into a greater uh, reality. Uh, if this is true of the world, the, just the very nature of the world, it's also true of us as people. In some ways, we are like a microcosm of the universe. And we also participate in both realms at once. Um, in our bodily existence, we participate in this natural, visible world. And by our spiritual nature, we participate in all that is great and glorious and above us um, in that unseen realm, uh, realm of reality. But something that's very interesting is that this dual capacity to be both a part of nature and a part of supernature at the same time is something unique to the human being. We are the only creature in existence who has this dual nature. The angels are pure spirit. They have no bodily existence. They might appear as a body occasionally as we see in scripture, but their reality is purely spiritual. All the animals um, participate in nature, but we participate in both. So we are like that cosmos. We overlap. The two realms overlap within um, the human being. And uh, Lewis calls this place where we overlap the imagination um, because it's a little of both. It's simultaneously connected to what's transcendent and above, and it's connected to everything um, that we know through our senses through the earth. It's important to point out here that imagination, um, and this is what he calls the imagination, it's where these two realms come together because what's in the imagination are 
images, words, experiences, right, that we have taken in and collected through our um, five senses. And then we're also, our minds are open to this eternal transcendent reality, like the writers of scripture, the writer of Revelation. Um, he's seeing something that is real, um, that is uh, taking place in the heavenly realms. He, he is seeing that, but it's also integrating with images that he's already has um, from his uh, experience as a human being who sees and hears and reads. I do want to point out that uh, the imagination is more than just our capacity to form images in our minds when our eyes are closed. Sometimes people think that this power to visualize is the imagination. And I just want to say it is more than that. It includes that, but that's not all there is to it. Uh, the imagination is an organ of perception that participates in the visible realm through the five senses and in the unseen realm through the intuition. It's passive in that it receives or is acted upon by what it encounters, and it's active in that it processes, experiences, it generates new insights that could be expressed in words or action or creative work. So your imagination is busy all the time processing all of this stuff. And as it processes, it doesn't just process in images. It's, it's processing with everything uh, that we have as human beings that we bring to the table. An example of, of this, um, a painter, for example, who wants to paint the Madonna, uh, Mary and the baby Jesus, uh, might spend a long time studying other artists' work and then months observing moms with their babies, a careful, um, meditation upon the scripture. They may spend a long time taking in these images. The imagination is processing them. It's the, you don't have to, your imagination is always working. You are not necessarily consciously aware that it's working, but the artist takes these things, he's mulling over them, and then all of a sudden, there's a burst of inspiration and the, and the painting commences. So the artist's imagination is passive and then it's receiving all of these ideas and concepts, but also active. Uh, he or she receives the images and ideas until a fresh concept forms, and then the artist acts to create what he or she has imagined. Uh, not all of us are painters, of course, but imagination works the same way for everyone. We use our imaginations to make sense of the world, to find God's will for us, and to shape our lives in accordance with what we imagine. That's important. We shape our lives in accordance with what we imagine. Um, according to Lewis, the imagination is a bridge between uh, the spiritual and the physical aspects of our beings. Uh, as Lewis said, it may be said that by this middle element, man is man. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. Uh, Lewis calls this calls the imagination the chest, the liaison between the cerebral man and the visceral man. This middle aspect is really the human being's greatest strength because it coordinates everything, our sense experiences, our memories, symbols, stories, myth, all together into a meaningful whole. Um, Lewis points out as well that the imagination has a lot to do with our moral strength. He says, the head rules the belly through the chest, the seat of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. And so when it's rightly formed, the chest, the imagination, allows us to govern our instincts. So if you want to be a virtuous man or a virtuous woman, it starts with how you imagine yourself, with the content of your imagination. Uh, this is why stories and myths about virtuous people are so important to our moral development. Uh, when we identify with a virtuous protagonist, we start to imagine ourselves as virtuous people. So if you read the uh, Lord of the Rings, if you live in the Lord of the Rings, like some of the kids do at Church of the Resurrection, um, you, the child begins to identify with Aragon or with Galadriel. And um, 
That identification shapes and forms our idea of who we are as human beings. What does it mean to be a noble, uh, an ennobled human being? So we need um, the content of our imagination to be shaped and formed by this. Um, a well-formed imagination also allows us to recognize the transcendent presence of God in the world around us. Uh, we need our imagination, the eyes of faith, to perceive what, that God is at work in our world. Um, sometimes I think uh, when a person uh, enters into despair, it's because in part their imagination is so bereft of any images of hope, of any understanding of how God breaks into our world. Um, our imaginations have to be shaped by Christian truth if we're to envision the triumph of good over evil, the power of love over hatred, the realization of beauty and divine order. Um, my family has this, I don't know, perhaps uh, neurotic habit, I don't know. Uh, sometime, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, we, all of us can have trouble like settling down in order to go to sleep. So we started to get these books on tape from the library, and um, we've listened to, I don't know, 30 CDs, I think. Lord of the Rings is 30 CDs by this like great reader. And um, we listen to these things like over and over and over again. Why is it, why would a story like that be so compelling to the imagination? Because it's such a great um, remaking of the cosmic battle between good and evil. And it's a story where the little people win the day, where humility is strength, where virtue is in the, in the hands of the powerful, where we see what looks like is going to be, everything is going to be lost, and there is a triumph of good over evil in the end. We're hungry for that. We want those narratives in our lives. Um, there are a whole, I noticed this the last time I went to see a movie, that all of the um, trailers were for dystopias. You know what a dystopia is, right? The opposite of a utopia. Every one of them was of like, so what if actually evil does triumph over good? <laughs> I mean, that's really the, the ideas that they are uh, wrestling with there. And you, you know, in the end, maybe might will win. In the end, someone will blow up the bad guy. But it's not a Christian triumph of good over evil. It's not that triumph of, of the weak, of the small things, of the inverted kingdom, which wins uh, the day. Uh, because we live in a secularistic, um, pluralistic society, we um, can't be passive about this. We have to make an active effort to shape and transform our imaginations. Um, apparently, um, this was also true in Paul's time. And this is important to remember. Sometimes I think we like idealize that early Christian epic and we think, oh, everything that surrounded them was Christian, Christian, Christian. They just didn't have to deal with all this pagan malarkey that we have to deal with. Um, that's not true. <laughs> uh, they lived in a very pluralistic um, pagan um, society. And um, we... When, when Paul says to the, to the uh, Colossians, uh, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Um, he tells the Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of, play, of praise, think about these things. They needed those instructions because there were other things that they too could think about and set their imaginations upon. Um, so we have to just be careful not to blame our culture for the impoverished um, state of our imaginations. This is really something that the Lord gives us stewardship over. We can and we must overcome the corruption of our culture so that we can turn and bless it through our contributions. Um, as you might expect, this means we have two tasks. First of all, we have to deal 
with the pollution of our imaginations. Uh, the culprits for this uh, pollution, I sort of redundant to even name these, but uh, visual, visual media, the internet, movies, video games, um, can bring uh, images that um, corrupt and pollute the imagination. They also come to us through the music we listen to and through just about every form of entertainment, which means we have to be a little circumspect about our entertainment. And I have to tell you, for whatever reason, this has become more of a temptation for me um, you know, as I'm pushing 50 than it was when I was 25. Um, and, you know, it has to do with streaming media. Because I really like the fact that you can, like, watch something on Netflix without commercials. That just makes me so happy. And then, like, for only $7.99 a month, I have, like, all this stuff. I could, like, watch the computer 24-7. You know, it's just so awesome. Um, but it's there. It's just always there. Um, when we were early married, we didn't have this issue because we didn't have a TV. But, like, we never turned our TV on, and now we have the same problem that we would have had back then had we had a TV. So I do think it actually takes more of an effort to um, think about um, fasting and being very careful and selective about, um, about what we watch. Um, the Lord can only, he, he works in the imagination, you know, as uh, so we've been praying this week and there's, you know, the Lord will bring up images in your imagination that can really minister to and comfort your heart. Well, he works with what you put in there. So if the only thing you put in there is twisted and broken, um, he doesn't really have much to work with. You're not really giving him much material with which to speak, um, speak to you. Um, secondly, uh, the obvious thing, and we've talked about this this week, is uh, pornography as a source of pollution. It corrupts our concept of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. It rots out the heart's core images of what it means to be a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a mother, or a father. Um, but we have to be aware that not just sexual images have that power. There are other images that do equal violence to us as human beings. So don't underestimate the power of non-sexual images to pollute your imagination. I think in particular, um, I think we're really numb to violent images. I'm not sure why that is. Um, I mean, I like the latest like superhero movie as much as the next person, but you you begin to wonder, like, why does that bother us so little? Why do those images of violence seem to be, like, not affect us? Um, like, you might not, you'd think, oh, you know, I can't watch this awful R-rated movie with sex scene in it, you know, and then, like, be worried about coming to church the next morning and being, like, plagued with the images of what I saw on TV. Um, but we don't think that way about violent images. Um, I'm not speaking to you as someone who, like, is really good at avoiding all that, but just to say, we have to be really careful, not just about sexual images, but with other images as well. It's, um, I think the temptation is that we often meet people who have great vices, um, but they're portrayed as beautiful or as attractive, and we imbibe that, we take it in. So the pollution, I think that's just an obvious thing. And we, we have, I think, a certain amount of control over that. Uh, I think the the difficulty that has been it 's not so much as much as it, it is not as much of a problem now, but there was uh, when fundamentalism was really a big um, movement within Christianity uh, in the United States from like the 1920s to i don 't know maybe the 1980s there was this idea that um, the imagination was like a problem, and so if you would like not watch any TV, you would not uh, read all that fiction about that pretend reality, and you would just read the Bible, Bible and Bible only, that somehow just the Bible in and of itself would uh, form your imagination, and you would be good, and you could be holy. Um, it was almost like people were afraid of the imagination. Uh, if you, even now, like if you use the word visualization in a lot of circles, They'll be like, oh, Buddhism. Um, 
listen, Buddhists, they do visualize. Why do they visualize? Because visualization is human. Um, uh, this is just what we do. This is how our minds work. Um, if you can't visualize, it's because something has like broken down and died in you. Uh, we have to stamp out that visualizing uh, capacity of the brain. It dies over time. Uh, if you meet a little kid, they live in that world. You know, they may not be like closing their eyes and being like, I see it. But they live in it with their eyes open. They're in, they're in their imaginations all, um, all the time. Um, Lewis talks about the importance of baptizing our imaginations. To me, that means baptism evokes two concepts. One is cleansing, and the second is to make them fully Christian. Um, Lewis says, for every one pupil who needs to be guarded against a weak excess of sensibility, meaning too much um, imagery, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. Uh, the only remedy for a barren heart is to invest time and energy to enrich uh, the imagination. Um, let me give you some things that I think are very commonsensical, but it, I think it helps to think of them not just as like, good Christians do this stuff, like this is a rule, um, this is some kind of legalism and you need to do it, but to say these things are actually shaping and forming my imagination and my capacity to hear from God. Um, Holy Scripture provides us with image upon image upon image upon image for the imagination. Um, living, hearing the, the scripture read, reading scripture, seeing it um, um, acted out like we saw with uh, on Friday night, the story of Abraham. We get all those Christian symbols into our hearts and minds. They, they build up this vast like repository of Christian symbols. Um, we need culture and the arts, music, visual arts, performing arts, um, to provide us with those images. How marvelous that most of um, Western art is full of sacred images, right? Um, a good trip to a sacred exhibit in a museum is a really good thing for your soul. Listening to beautiful music is a good thing for your soul. And as I mentioned before, we need stories and myths. Uh, by these we learn courage, faithfulness, valor, the triumph of love. Uh, reading good literature is a profound way to enrich your imagination. And uh, you're never too old to start reading children's books. So some of my happiest hours are like sitting on the floor in the Wien Public Library um, reading all those awesome children's books. And you know what some really good children's books have been written in the last couple of decades? They're really wonderful. Um, don't imagine that just your children are being, or grandchildren are being impacted uh, by those stories um, as parents, grandparents were also uh, impacted by those stories. Now, for the biggie, symbol uh, and sacrament. I have to say this is the part that was revolutionary for me. Uh, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, I was the kind of person that, uh, I went to Wheaton College, and um, we would occasionally have these um, liturgical chapels that would be um, led by this, this uh, Professor Bob Weber. And um, my roommate and I, she was American Baptist, her dad was an American Baptist pastor. And um, we would have this discussion before these like quarterly or whatever, we'd have these like, you know, liturgical chapels. And we'd be like, I don't know if I even want to go, you know, because, like, are those people even really Christians? Okay? So it was almost this, like, idea that, like, anybody who's Catholic or does anything that is formal is, like, suspect. Like, those are the liberals. We're the people who believe in the word of God, and we don't need all those extra things, right? Um, that was... Uh, the, we were like going to a vineyard. Uh, the vineyard we went to, we met in a gymnasium and we had like patriotic paintings on the walls, you know, <laughs> and a flag and basketball hoops and, you know, 
I don't think there were any Christian symbols in there at all, except maybe for the Bible. Um, that was it. I mean, that's where we were. Um, and so we, we went to a conference that was hosted by Church of the Resurrection. And um, these people up, like, with collars on are, like, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm like, wow, this is really blowing my mind, you know? And, um, and there was holy water. I'm like, holy water? Holy water? You've got to be kidding. Isn't that like superstition? A crucifix? Really? I mean, and I, it was blowing my mind because my idea was now that is dead, formal religion, and like people who go to those kind of churches, they need to get saved. Uh, <laughs> that's where I was coming from. So this introduction to symbol and liturgy was like a brand new thing uh, for me. Um, one of the things that sold me on it is sometime in college, uh, one of my friends who lives in Indiana, um, there's some like kind of strange folk religion in Indiana. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, but there was this man, this like deliverance guy. And um, he believed that like pretty much everybody had demons, any number of them. And that the best way to get them out was for him to pray, and then there would be buckets in the pews, and you would barf out your demons, okay? Right. <laughs> it's terrible. Just terrible. I mean, horrifying. You walk into the church, you're like, oh, what's that smell, you know? <laughs> I wish I was kidding, okay? I wish this was like secondhand information, all right? This is like first person. I was there. And um, this this poor woman is like laying on the floor. There's like four men, you know, holding her down and she's crying and they're, and the, and the exorcist is like, it's terrible. He's really overweight and he's like sweating profusely, you know? And I'm like, how, you know, it's going to take all night to get the demon out of this woman. You know, I mean, really, this is, it was just like, I was just kind of horrified. You know, I couldn't get the smell of the church out of my, out of my mind for like a week. And, um, so that was like, and I also knew these people who were, I called them the shouted out deliverance people, like, come out, come out, come out, you know, and you're like, woohoo, so, I don't know, it sends you in some sort of state, right? So, I really liked the fact that there were plenty of people at this conference who had trouble with um, dark spirits because of their perverted lifestyles and having been abused, etc., etc., and it was very beautiful and in order to just sprinkle holy water on them, to see the tears, maybe a little or whatever. But it was in order. It was dignified. The human being was not made to be humiliated or embarrassed or to do something yucky in order to be holy. It was beautiful. Water is a fitting symbol of cleansing. And that in and of itself, I'm like, well, I should give a second thought to this holy water thing. I mean, I'm like, ooh, I'm not comfortable, but I need to try. Um, and it was maybe, I don't know, six months after that, that we started going to Wednesday night uh, healing services at Church of the Resurrection. And um, at one point in the calendar year, it was time to do the blessing of the water and oil. And uh, William Beasley, the rector at the time, he said, Hey, you guys, we're going to bless the water and oil. Why don't you come? I'm like, <sighs> you know, I'm still like, I don't know how I feel about this holy water business. So we went. It was, this, it was in the morning. The sun is coming through the little skylight in the church. Um, it's beautiful. The prayers are full of the Holy Spirit and order. There's this idea of like matter and prayer coming together as one thing and it started to put my heart at ease and maybe shortly thereafter I had I started having these dreams about the laver in the Old Testament filled with water um, <laughs> at one point I had this this dream that I was in the grocery store and I met this woman who was deeply distressed and I knew I knew I needed to pray for her and then on <laughs> Freakishly, there appears an Old Testament laver in the grocery store. And in, in my dream, I like wash her with holy water and she's fine, you know? 
What's, what's happening? My imagination, your imagination works in your dreams too, right? My imagination is putting everything together. Ah, the Old Testament laver. Ah, the people who have darkness and need for healing. Um, all of this starts to come together in the dream. And my whole world is becoming sanctified, sacramentalized. Um, it's being transformed. It's being uh, baptized. Um, symbols like water are part of the essential structure of reality. Um, even before the fall, God revealed himself to mankind through symbols. All of creation uh, reveals God. Uh, but most critically, man and woman together reveal who God is. The unfallen Adam is given the power to create symbols through language. He names all the animals in the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve. In the image of God, he creates them. He makes them a symbol of his very self. Um, each of us, I am not just a woman. I am a symbol of womanhood and a reflection of who God is. Keith is not just a man. He is a symbol of manhood and a symbol of who God is. And together, uh, man and woman, I'm not talking about marriage uh, necessarily. Together, man and woman, we, Im we mysteriously image God. We reveal God to the world. Symbols reveal re reality to us. Um, I think, you know, thinking about Keith's talk last night, one of the reasons there's such a diabolical movement to cross out what does it mean to be man, what does it mean to be woman, is because <laughs> there's this diabolical um, scheme to try to stamp out the knowledge of God in the world. And man and woman, we image God. Uh, that's why the battle is so fierce right here. Um, after the fall, it does become more difficult for us to connect with what is real. Uh, it's as though there's a disconnection between consciousness and reality. I don't know if you've ever had this um, experience. Um, I had it especially as a young Christian. I remember uh, the first time I'd had a really profound encounter with the Lord at maybe age 14 or 15. And uh, sometime in the next few days after that, I was walking outside, and the trees, every leaf, seemed to be distinct and beautiful. Almost like, <gasps> I've walked past that tree so many times and I haven't seen it. As though we have, most of the time, this disconnect between ourselves, our consciousness, our understanding of what's real and reality. And um, symbols help us to overcome that um, disconnect. Uh, that story that uh, Catherine shared on Thursday night about the village that forgot reality. Remember, they had to have little signs on everything. You know, this is a chair. You sit on it. Um, that, is a, that is such a great metaphor of how we are in our fallen condition. And we need that Christ figure to come and to bring uh, the remedy so that we can connect to what is real again. Most amazingly, Christ has come. He is the image, the symbol. He reveals God, but he also reveals what it means to be a human being. As though we, uh, in fact, lost what it meant to be a human being. It was slipping away from us. But we see in Christ, he reveals what it is to be a human being, and he reveals God. And so that's why symbol is the, at the heart of Christianity. Um, God is always revealing himself to us through symbol, through image, through sacrament. Um, Alexander Schmiemann um, says that symbols allow us to get beyond the knowledge about God to that experiential knowledge of God. And I think for any of us who have struggled with that head-heart split or an over-intellectualized experience of faith. Symbol is critical for integrating head and heart. Uh, 
Uh, for perhaps the most important of these symbols for us is the cross. Um, all the false images from the various systems of the world that pollute um, our imagination, our understanding of the world, the dark images, what do we do with them? Where do we take them? Um, they can all be taken to the cross. Uh, Leanne Payne writes, it is the casting of our eyes upon God, and in this case, that which symbols his salvation that matters. When we look to Christ crucified, the picture our heart makes of Christ on the cross acts in its full capacity as symbol to become a vehicle for all the saving power of God to come to us. It opens us to meaning. Meaning streams into the deepest reaches of the deep heart through it. Thus, in that one symbol, the entire theology of the cross comes together with the experience, the reception of grace. I wonder how many of you, uh, when uh, Father Stuart, uh, as a holy man, as a symbol of the church, held up that crucifix last night, did that impact you in any way? Just that image, you raise your hand, that impact you in any way? Yeah, huge, right? It's huge. Um, this participation in ceremony and ritual and the sacraments is a critical part of enriching our imaginations, of converting them, baptizing them, making them fully Christian. Successful ceremony engages the imagination through the senses. It's fully connected to that part of us that is uh, attacked, attached to the visceral world. And it connects us to absolute reality, to the unseen real. It's so important to know that we can worship with our eyes open. Uh, this is something that I noticed. Um, you know, in a, for example, that er, those early days uh, in the vineyard. By the way, the vineyard is kind of adjusted and adapted, you know, in 25 years. Um, it was actually in that auditorium, right, filled with like patriotic symbols, a pretty good idea to close one's eyes while worshiping so as to not be distracted by all these symbols that had nothing to do with faith. Um, but in a, in a church where every piece is thought of as being sacred, as being some avenue, some reflection of reality, of the real, of, of the Christian symbolic system, we can worship with our eyes open. Uh, we can look. Uh, we can see. Imagination is not just the images you have when uh, your eyes are closed. Your imagination, sometimes you need to open the windows, open the doors, look out, and take in um, uh, beauty through, this, through the liturgy. Um, I'd like to finish this with a story again. Uh, Karis. So she's 16 now, and um, two Holy Weeks ago, ago, she had a really profound experience. Um, inviting a teenager to Holy Week, you do this with a little fear and trepidation, right? You're like, well, first there's going to be the three-hour Palm Sunday service, and then, and it goes on and on, right? I calculated it's something like 20 hours worth of church, over the course of a week, that's quite a bit. Um, one of my Orthodox friends calculated the Orthodox as like 36 hours of church, so maybe we shouldn't complain. Um, but you think, what teenager is really going to want to go to 20 hours worth of church, you know? So um, uh, when Monday, Thursday, and, and Good Friday, first of all, she had to be at the Wednesday Tenebrae service because she'd been asked to serve, so she did that. Um, then Thursday and Friday, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want you to feel overburdened with all this church stuff, so you can choose if you want to go to either one or the other. She's like, ah, I'm going to go to all of them. I'm like, oh, good, fantastic, I love it, all right. You know, I try not to be like, jump up and down or anything, just kind of like take it in stride, right? So we did it all. We did Tenebrae, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, um, and... Uh, the silent procession, um, the vigil, everything. Uh, by Friday, um, she was really, really engaged. Um, if you've been to our Good Friday service, we, we take the cross, we lay it on the uh, chancel floor, 
And you can come and you can touch the cross, you can pray at the cross. The Catholics call this veneration of the cross. Okay, if that freaks you out, don't worry about it. it but it is, it is this interaction. It's letting the, the symbol of the cross come deeply into our hearts. At one point, we're all up on the um, chancel stage, and I saw my daughter in the arms of my husband weeping her eyes out. You know, and you're always thinking, hmm, like, she done something like she didn't tell me about. She feels really bad. You know, I know she took this Florida trip with the band. Maybe she did something awful and she's like, you know, repenting or whatever. I mean, you think the worst, right, of teenagers. You're like, oh, no, I thought we had, you know, escaped the tragedy and the trauma so far. Maybe not. But I, I asked her later, you know, like, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know, the classic teenager response, right? So, um... Uh, at, at bedtime that night after uh, Good Friday, I, um, I went in and um, uh, sat with her, and I'm trying to maybe see if I can gently coax out of her what's going on, you know. Um, and I said, can you tell me what was, you know, happening? Oh, no, I don't, not really. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I thought, well, all right, I'll try to prime the pump a little bit. I'll say, well... I'll tell you what happened for me, because I was crying too. Um, not while she was crying, but at a different time. I said, well, when I was uh, on Monday, Thursday, I don't remember what song we were singing, but I had this beautiful sense of like being at the cross. I was actually so close that when I looked straight forward, I could really only see the feet of Christ. And I could see him struggling to hold up his body. I was just weeping. It was, it, I felt so close um, to Jesus. I felt like I must have been seeing him at that same perspective that the women at the cross saw Jesus. So I shared this with her. She like said, pull up right in bed. She said, that's what happened to me. She said, I was feeling empathy for the women at the cross. That's what full participation in ceremony, in ritual, in sacraments does for us. It allows us to have these encounters with Jesus Christ that we don't have if our, if our imaginations are not baptized and cleansed and healed. You know, for this, I think, pretty average teenager, goes to public schools, and um, for this very average um, teenager, she encountered the presence of God, uh, was able to reach into her imagination to allow her to experience all that is real and eternal in God. And these experiences are not for the super saints. You don't have to be like Teresa of Avila. You know, to have like an encounter with, with the living God and the imagination, these experiences are for um, all of us.